What is the best thing that anyone has ever done for you in your life? Think about that for a minute. Sure, there, there are many things coming to your mind right now, right? Best thing anybody's ever done for you. Maybe, maybe you're thinking of a time when you're in a terrible bind financially and a, and a parent or a, a, a loved one or a friend or maybe even a total stranger helped you out of that situation. Maybe you're thinking of a time when you're in a bad, when you're in bad shape in a, in a physical way and a doctor or nurse came to your aid and provided you with the care you needed to recover. Maybe you're thinking of a time when you're in harm's way and someone put their, their life on the line to save you. But let me ask you this. Have you ever had anyone pay the ultimate price for you? Have you ever had anyone give up their life to save you? There's a story I read a while back that I want to share with you about a devoted father who paid the ultimate price, who made the ultimate sacrifice for his son. Listen to this report. On January 24th, 2012, a devoted father sacrificed his own life to save his disabled son. When a car raced towards them as they walked together, George Tyson, 61, pushed his son Gary out of the path of the oncoming car and took the full impact himself. He was killed almost instantly. His 32-year-old son was airlifted to the hospital and was later discharged after being treated for minor injuries and shock. Mr. Tyson's distraught family praised him for making the, the ultimate and heroic sacrifice which saved the life of their son and brother. Wow. What an incredible demonstration of love. I mean, can you, can you imagine what it would feel like to be on the receiving end of that? To have a, a husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, friend, or, or even a total stranger lay down their life for you. Can you imagine that? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. This week for Palm Sunday and next week for, for Easter, we're taking a break from our sermon series through the book of Acts to focus on the two greatest events in human history, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Today we are going to discuss the fact that someone has in fact made the ultimate sacrifice in order to save us. Someone has in fact given their life up for our salvation. And we're going to explain why this act of self-sacrifice is the greatest, most selfless, most important work that anyone has ever done for anybody in the history of the world. And though I'm sure many of you in here are familiar with the story, you know where we are in the story, because we're jumping in at the end of John, let me give you a brief word by way of context here, okay? Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own, Judas, and he's been arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. 
denied by Peter three times, tried by the Jewish religious leaders, and he's already stood before Pilate, and he's been beaten, he's been ridiculed, and now in John 19, he is being led away to be crucified. Now, though at first Pilate pushed for Jesus' release, he said again and again, I find no fault with this man. The Jewish religious leaders forced Pilate's hand. They blackmailed him and, and forced his hand to act. And because Pilate didn't have a backbone, we're told he, he beat Jesus and he sent him away finally to be crucified. And listen, there are so many things that John could have focused on in this gospel account of Jesus's crucifixion. He could have talked about how horrible it was to die by crucifixion. He could have described in in deep detail, in great detail, the horror and the agony that Christ went through on the cross or how sad it was and how difficult it was for some of his friends and family to witness him being crucified. But what we're going to learn this morning as we look at John's account in John 19 is John doesn't really focus much on those details. Though he could have selected and highlighted a number of these things when giving his account, instead what John does is he shows his readers the greatness and the majesty and the beauty and the glory of the crucified king. So this morning... As I talk about the resurrection, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to attempt to do John's chapter in John 19, Justice. You know, a proper way to teach and and preach a text of Scripture is you've got to find out what the writer's intent is, what is, what he is emphasizing. And then you are to emphasize that. You're to get at what the writer's intention was for for writing. So I'm not going to take the usual approach this morning, try to tug at your heartstrings by painting this vivid picture of the agony of the cross, though it was agonizing. But I'm going to try to preach this text the way I believe John intended it to be read and studied by myself focusing on the majesty and the beauty and the glory of our crucified king. This morning, we're going to discuss four ways the cross exalts Christ. First, this event, the crucifixion, exalts Christ, number one, get this, by the way it fulfills Scripture. The cross fulfills Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture is a major emphasis of John here in John 19. Notice verse 24. He says this was to fulfill Scripture. Verse 28, to fulfill Scripture. Verse 36, for these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Now let me ask you this, starting off right off the bat, do you think John's trying to tell us something here? Jumps off the page, doesn't it? Yeah, he's showing that the crucifixion of Christ, though tragic and horrific, is all a part of God's plan. I want you to notice something here. Though John highlights four obvious prophecies fulfilled in this passage, there are tons more that are found here. I mean, Jesus' death alone here in John 19 fulfills massive amounts of prophecy. So let's move 
quickly through certain specific ones because really we could spend a, a month or more in this one passage alone just studying the ins and outs of all the prophecy that's fulfilled here. First, look at verse 16. John says this, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus. In other translations, it says they led him away. I think that's a better translation. I think that that is a better translation from the Greek, and it really gets at what went on here. Think about that phrase for a minute. They led him away. That is a short, seemingly insignificant statement, isn't it? But it's extremely important. You see, history tells us that because of the scourging and the beating of those being crucified, and because because of the fact that many were often paralyzed with fear, they often had to be carried away or carted off to be crucified. That was common. That happened often. But, but notice, Jesus wasn't drugged. He wasn't driven. He was led. That means he didn't go against his will, but he went without resistance. Folks, that is an extremely significant, important detail, and it fulfills Scripture. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 7, which, by the way, I'm going to reference Isaiah 53 a lot. Surprise, surprise, right? But you have that in your spiritual growth guide. But Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 7, hundreds of years before this event, he says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah said that when the Messiah goes to his death, he will not be driven, he will not be drugged, he will not be forced against his will, but like a lamb, he's going to be led to the slaughter. Look at verse 17 of John 19. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Notice the phrase, went out. Once again, seems like an unimportant, insignificant detail, doesn't it? But it's extremely important. You see, this phrase indicates that Jesus went out of the city. When he was crucified, he was crucified outside the city. You see, the Romans had a law that that no one could be crucified within city limits, within the boundary of the city. So those being crucified, they had to be led out of the city. Now, Now, think about this. Though the Jews had tried several times to stone Jesus inside the city, they were not able. You know why? Because scripture is clear that his sacrifice had to be offered outside of the city. You you see, all of the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings were pictures of Christ and the work that he came to accomplish. And one type of offering that was uh, offered was called a sin offering. In Exodus 29, 14, we're told, But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Sin offerings were offered outside the camp. We're also told this in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 12 and in Leviticus chapter 16 verse 27. We're told repeatedly, offerings, sin offerings were taken outside the camp. Let me ask you this, who is the ultimate sin offering? Jesus. So where then did Jesus need to be taken to atone for sin? Outside the camp. Outside the camp. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 through 12 up on the screen. 
The author of Hebrews says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's pretty clearly stated, isn't it? To atone for sin, Jesus had to be sacrificed outside the camp, which is why he's sent out of the city to be crucified. In verse 18, look at John 19, verse 18. We're told that when Jesus reached Golgotha, there they crucified him. Jesus died a Roman death, and this too fulfills tons of prophecy. Remember, Jesus said of himself in John three fourteen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's he talking about there? Talking about his death. Going to be lifted up for the salvation of his people. Jesus is referring to his crucifixion. In Zechariah chapter 12 and in Psalm 22, we're told the Messiah is going to be pierced. In Psalm 22, we're told that his hands and his feet are going to be pierced. Again, these books were written hundreds of years before the cross. Also in Psalm 22, as the psalmist is portraying the coming of the Messiah, he further gives further description to what it was like to be crucified. He says, my bones are out of joint, my tongue sticks to my jaws, and my strength is dried up. Look back at John 19. End of verse 18, John says, with him, with Christ, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Jesus was crucified with two criminals on either side of him. And though that just seems wrong and terribly unjust, it fulfills Scripture as well. Also, remember, one of them trusts in Christ alone for salvation. That, too, is a direct fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 12, listen to what he says. He says, He was numbered with the transgressors, with the wicked, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. He accomplishes salvation for the transgressors. So here, Isaiah is prophesying that the Messiah will die a criminal's death in between criminals for the sake of criminals. He also says in 53.9 that his grave is with the wicked. And guess what? There's more. We're not done, all right? Skip on down to verse 23 of John 19. John says this, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. John comes right out here and highlights this prophecy for us, doesn't he? He tells us that these men who were dividing Christ's garments were fulfilling Scripture. Look back up on the screen at Psalm 22 again, beginning in verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, let me ask you this. How did these men know to do this? 
Did they know about this prophecy in Psalm 22? Did they say, hey, we got to cast lots because we got to fulfill this prophecy so that later on people will read about our acts that we didn't believe in Jesus? Surely none of you believe that. They, they, didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. They, they probably didn't even know about this prophecy. But you know who did know? God knew. And, and notice here, he's making moves to fulfill his word, and yet in no sense is the guilt removed from these men and placed upon God. Though God is sovereign, man is responsible. So you have this group of wicked and callous and godless soldiers carrying out the wicked and evil act of gambling for and dividing up Christ clothes as he suffers and dies on the cross. Yet as they're carrying out this wicked plan, they're fulfilling prophecy letter by letter. And there's so much more here in this text. In the, in the following verses, John mentions something Jesus says that fulfills Scripture, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. He also mentions the fact that none of Jesus' bones were, were broken, and that too is a, a fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecy, and there's so much more we don't have time to go into this morning because time will not allow it. But something I want to encourage you to do this next week or in, a, in the next couple of weeks is take some time to study the prophecy that is fulfilled by Christ during his earthly ministry. I promise it will be edifying to you believers in here. It's amazing when you look at it. I read recently where there were over 300 messianic prophecies that were fulfilled during Christ's earthly ministry. And a mathematician figured this probability, the mathematical probability of 300 plus prophecies coming to pass in one individual. And he said the probability of that is 1 in 84 with 100 zeros after it. Now, I'm not a math guy, and I don't know if his calculations are correct, but think about that. 300-plus prophecies coming to pass in one man seems seemingly improbable, right? So what should that tell us? I'll tell you. God was behind it all. The only explanation for all of these events happening in this way is that they happen in accordance with the sovereign plan and design of God. Do you see why this event, though seemingly tragic, is to be viewed as being magnificent? Do you know, do you see now, why Christ, though seemingly unsuccessful and lowly, should be viewed as victorious and exalted and glorious? Do you see that? Listen, Jesus was no victim. The cross was not the great tragedy of his life, as some liberal scholars say. This event is the God-ordained, God-authored, God-planned, God-designed climax of Christ's life. At the cross, Christ was not the victim, folks. He was the victor. So through the fulfillment of Scripture, we see that Christ, though crucified, is exalted. The, the second way this event, the crucifixion, exalts Christ is in the way it highlights his kingship. We see Christ as king at the cross. Do you know that? We often think of Christ as being king when he's resurrected and, and surely when he's exalted and when he returns. But do you know we see the kingship of Christ at the cross? Look at verses 19 through 22. John says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put 
it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In this day, when one was crucified, they were marched through the, through the streets of the city, out of the city, to the place where they were to be executed. And there was a man who was assigned to carry a sign to walk with them. And on that sign, on that placard, was written the offense of the one being crucified. So if you were a thief, on your placard would say, thief. But notice in this passage, because no crime had been committed by Christ, according to Pilate, because remember, once again, he said time and time again, I find no fault with this man. So because he thought Jesus was innocent, and also because he wanted to get back at the Jews for blackmailing him and forcing his hand to send Jesus away to be crucified, Pilate takes this opportunity to take a shot at them. And I'm sure he loathed and and despised the Jewish leaders for what they had forced him to do. So he takes revenge. And on Jesus' placard, he has written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I guess, my guess is, Pilate loved every minute of that. Don't you? This is one chance to fire back at them with this cynical and sarcastic insult toward them, and it landed. It had the desired effect. I mean, this got all over the Jews for several reasons. One, because the sign read, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth in this day, it was hick town. It was. You remember when Nathaniel heard that Jesus came from Nazareth? He was like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Those from the prestigious city of Jerusalem, they snubbed their nose at the Nazarenes. So it was preposterous to them to think that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. So they didn't like that one bit. That was offensive to them. But even more troublesome was that little statement that said, King of the Jews. Now, why would this bother them? Well, think about where Jesus is. He's on the cross. And and Pilate is saying very sarcastically and jokingly, here is your king. Behold your king, the king of the Jews. I mean, think about that. If that was their king, what does that say about them? So because the Jews had questioned Pilate's loyalty to Rome and Caesar and knocked him down a few pegs, he thought he would return the favor by humiliating them and mocking them, by labeling this man who is crucified with criminals as their king. And notice Pilate, he goes out of his way to make sure both Jews and Gentiles get the message, doesn't he? John tells us that Pilate has the message written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Jews. He has it written in Latin, which was the language of the Romans. And he has it written in Greek, which was the language of most every common person in the known world at this time. So he wants to make sure that everyone in and around that area and passing through is able to read it. And again, the Jews don't like this one bit, and they try to get Pilate to change it. Notice what they say. They say, don't say he is the king of the Jews, but rather he said that he was. You know, Don't say that he is, but say that he said that he was. And that would change things a bit, wouldn't it? 
Because one says that he is, the other says he's an imposter. He's, he's a fake making a false claim. And notice here, Pilate finally gets a backbone, doesn't he? In verse 22, and he says, what I've written, I've written. What I've done, I've done. There's no changing it. And again, don't you know this got all over the Jewish religious leaders. This was devastating to their pride. This ate them up inside to see this man who in their eyes was a wicked blasphemer being publicly declared as their king. But get this. Here's the ironic thing about this statement here. Though Pilate was being cynical and sarcastic, the message that he declares at Calvary about Christ is absolutely true. It was true. The Jews had, in fact, crucified their king. Pilate was exactly right. Think about it. Written on that placard in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek is the gospel because at the heart of the gospel, you have a crucified king. So though Pilate wanted to strike back at the Jews, he ends up declaring the gospel from the cross. And I don't know this for sure, but I like to think that that inscription, because it's mentioned right before his conversion in Luke 23, was the catalyst that got the thief on the cross thinking about the person of Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, we don't know, but maybe that inscription was the instrument that God used to bring him to saving faith. I mean, think about what he says in Luke's account. He looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you enter into what? Your kingdom." kingdom the cross exalts Christ because it highlights that he is the king the third way the cross exalts Christ is in the many ways it demonstrates his selfless love boy you see the selfless love of Christ at Calvary don't you one way in particular John makes mention of in verses 25 through 27 let's look at it But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Let's stop there for just a minute. Notice there are four ladies here standing at the foot of the cross. The question is, where are the men? The strong, bold, courageous men. Remember, most of them were scattered at this time. They didn't want to be considered guilty by association, so they were nowhere near Calvary. Yet here, you have these strong, courageous women standing for Christ at the foot of the cross. Guys, get this. We do not have the market cornered when it comes to courage. Do you know that? Don't. It took courage. It took boldness to stand for Christ like these ladies did. While most of the disciples are in hiding, these ladies are at the cross. Now, thankfully, guys, one of us was present. Notice verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, we don't know how nearby he was, but he was nearby. That's John. So thankfully, guys, one of us was was there. We're not a total loss, right? said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So think about what we have here. This is, this is a neat account here, isn't it? One of the ladies at the foot of the cross was Jesus's earthly mother, Mary. She's there watching her son. You can't imagine what's going through 
her emotionally and through her mind and through what she's feeling watching her son being crucified. And we we're told that he, he sees her and he has compassion on her from the cross and he gives her a new son. Now, Mary had other sons. Remember, Jesus had brothers, but at, time, at this time, they were not followers of him. So he gives her a good, strong spiritual replacement in John. Something else extremely significant is taking place here. We see glimpses of this throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. But Jesus is fully trans- transitioning from being her earthly son to being her redeemer. Listen, folks, get this. Mary needed redemption. She was not a co-redeemer with Christ. She needed redemption from Christ. And that's what Christ is providing for her at the cross at Calvary. And, And notice here the selfless love of Christ. While he's completing this great work, which, by the way, we see his selfless love in the work that he accomplished for us at the cross, right? He was crushed by God for us so that we through him could have life in his name. But also, while he's bearing this burden that no one else could possibly have endured in the midst of the darkest moment in his life, in the darkest moment in history, Christ thinks not one thought of himself, but only cares for his mother and his beloved disciple. Hopefully, that gives you an even greater glimpse into how great and how deep and how selfless Christ's love is. Think about that for a moment. Then think about the way you respond when you go through trials in life. If you're anything like me, you have a tendency to shut everybody down when you go through difficulty. Now, I I can't deal with you and your baggage right now. I got my own, you know. It's what we have a tendency to do. When difficult trials come my way, I'll be honest, at times I'm thinking about me and my problems and not the concern of others. Jesus gave us a perfect example here of selfless love while enduring the weight of the cross he showed compassion toward others so the cross exalts christ in that it demonstrates his selfless love fourth and finally the crucifixion exalts christ in the way it showcases his divine power boy we see christ's divine power at the cross people some people don't think of that they look at the cross and they think weakness but we read john's account and we see power divine power in john's account of the crucifixion he shows that jesus knows what he's doing and he is in complete control omniscience is a fancy 25 cent theological term which simply means all-knowing and omnipotence is a fancy 25 cent theological term for all-powerful both are divine characteristics and we see glimpses of these characteristics throughout jesus's earthly ministry and we especially see it at the cross throughout his earthly ministry christ had this divine knowledge he knew where he was going He knew what he was going to accomplish. He was on a divine timetable, a divine schedule, and he was always right on time, in perfect sync with the Father. And the reason why is because he and the Father are one. Christ knew what scriptures needed to be fulfilled and when. Look at verse 28 of John 19. 
After this, after addressing his mother and his disciple, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Now, before he says it's finished, to tell us it's finished, he says, I thirst. Christ knew there was one last thing that needed to be said, one last prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before this great work was accomplished. When he says, I thirst, he is fulfilling the last bit of prophecy before his death found in Psalm 69. And the soldiers were told, under God's direction, under his guiding hand of providence, filled a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to the mouth of Jesus. Now, let me point this out. This is a neat side note. It's significant that they used hyssop here because the hyssop branch was what was used to spread blood over the doorpost in Exodus 12 before the Exodus. How significant then is it that it's used at the cross, on Christ, the final and the greatest Passover lamb. How awesome is that? And Jesus knew this had to be fulfilled before his death. He knows what needs to be done and when. Why? Because he's divine. He's fully God. And then notice verse 30, that after he had taken a drink, he said... It is finished to telestai, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. I love that verse of Scripture. And folks, let me tell you something here. That is not a cry of defeat. Notice he doesn't say, I'm finished. I'm done for. No, he says, it is finished. It is complete. I'm done. I'm finished. The work that God sent me to do, I've done it. And then notice what he does next in the text. This is so good. John says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He didn't jerk. He didn't just slump over and kill over. John says he bowed his head, which in the Greek, it means to lay or to gently pillow your head. And then it says he gave up his spirit. When Jesus accomplished the work that the Father had sent him to accomplish, he gently pillowed his head and he gave up his life. Remember what he said in John 10? Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own terms. Listen, folks, no one took the life of Christ from him. He laid his life down on his own terms, by his own power, and he did not lay it down. He did not give it up until all things were finished, until our salvation was complete. And folks, the application to be made here by us is clear and simple. Listen, Christ did not give up his life until our salvation was complete. When Christ died, there was nothing left to do. The the ransom was paid. Divine justice satisfied. Sins covered. Nothing more to add. I know I've shared this with you before, and I'm sure I'll share it with you time and time again as we study through the scriptures together because it's an emphasis that comes up over and over and over again. But I love the old hymn, Rock of Ages, that line that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. How great are those lyrics? There's nothing you bring to the table when it comes to your salvation. Christ has done it all for you. He has accomplished your salvation to tell us die, it is finished. 
There are many in our world today who think they have something to offer when it comes to salvation. They think, I'm trying my best to be good. Surely that counts for something. Listen, God clearly says in his word it counts for nothing. Nothing. Anything you offer up in your own power is filthy rags to God. God clearly says in his word that salvation was completed at the cross. Christ has done it all. He has paid it all. Therefore, what you got to do is you got to let go of any and every additional thing that you have that you think makes you right with God and you got to simply come empty-handed and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Listen, folks, God has provided an incredible way for guilty people like you and like me to be made right with him by sending his son. He sent his son, the king, to earth to accomplish salvation for us. And when he laid his life down and took it up again on the third day, which is what we're going to look at next week, there was nothing left undone. Christ, our crucified king, has done it all, and all that is required of you is for you to come empty-handed before him in faith and simply Trust in him alone. Cling to him alone for your salvation and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would before you leave here today. Let's pray.